Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, delving into the cloudy waters of decarbonisation in an attempt to bring you some clarity. My name is David Weston, and with me once again are Michaela Hall and Jan Rosenau. How are you both? As we're nearly a quarter of the way through 2022, which has flown by, how do you think this year is shaping up in terms of the energy transition? Hi, good. I think it's shaping up uh, as a year of record workload. That's how it feels. Uh, a quarter we've done already feels like an entire year yeah i mean this this year has already started quite was quite hectic you know when the fit for 55 package and lots of national policy was being discussed um i felt exhausted already at the beginning of the year and it's not getting any better because of course with the situation in ukraine there's a huge focus now on energy and that yeah it's for the wrong reasons but it, it also means there's a lot of potentially more progressive change happening in the sector, which uh, yeah, is, is so important. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion we have um, today, which is exactly about that. You know, where do we go next, especially on energy efficiency? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As Jan said, today we are looking at energy efficiency's role in cutting our carbon emissions. In recent years, energy efficiency has often been overlooked as a key tool in the energy transition. Talk frequently centers around how to add more renewables to the system or how to remove polluting forms of power generation, but never on what we can do to reduce demand in the first place. To paraphrase lawmakers and market observers, the cleanest electron is the one that is not used. By using energy more efficiently, we can reduce our demand. This immediately cuts emissions, but also makes reaching renewable energy targets significantly easier and cheaper. Foresight is also looking to energy efficiency in our upcoming special print issue due out in June, so do keep an eye out for that. This week, we are joined by Peter Sweetman, Chief Executive at Climate Strategy and Partners. Peter is a former JP Morgan executive, but has worked in the energy efficiency sector for over a decade. Peter, thanks for joining us on What Matters. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So everyone is talking about how we can reduce fossil fuel imports, given the current situation in the in Ukraine and the sky-high energy prices that preceded that. What role can energy efficiency play to help reduce demand and how much of an impact can it really make? So uh, thanks, David. Um, first of all, of course, um, at this at this time, you know, all of our thoughts are with everybody in Ukraine. And, um, you know, it's it's not just an energy crisis. It's a it's a European crisis. And um, I was actually delighted in answer to your question to see how quickly the European Commission uh, produced its Repower EU proposal. So that proposal is one that um, includes, in fact, energy efficiency measures uh, in homes that could deliver a 38 billion cubic meter reduction in gas usage by 2030. That's around 10% of the EU's overall gas consumption, and it's around a quarter of what we import from Russia. Um, these measures include a voluntary reduction uh, through solidarity uh, of one degree centigrade 
um, behavioral sort of temperature reduction, um, uh, which I, I'm happy to say we've already done in our office and at home and, and things like that. Um, and it includes the replacing of 10 million uh, gas boilers with heat pumps and accelerating the deployment of uh, solar roofs. Um, let me add, sort of most European homes, sadly, are still inefficient and we can reduce the amount of energy that they consume. Um, when I was doing the modeling, in fact, um, for the first long-term long national renovation strategy in Spain, where I'm based, the architecture school at Barcelona Tech University, who did that work with me, looked in detail at measures and costs for all types of Spanish homes. And we concluded that the majority could reduce their energy footprint by 80%. And sadly, that situation hasn't changed a lot. I also note that in response to the invasion of the Ukraine, the Buildings Performance Institute, BPIE, published a paper that looks just, at, well, looks at immediate potentials. But just one example from that is they see just attic insulation alone of being able to deliver a 14% reduction in the EU's building's heating needs. Peter, I, I like to come in here as a long-term advocate for energy efficiency and having worked with you before on, you know, remember us sitting in a room in, I think it was 2016, making the same case you just made to say there's a huge potential for more energy savings in Europe. Uh, you know, it, a lot of this is economic. It makes business sense. It just needs the right policy support. You know, remember us sitting in a meeting with, I think, a bunch of parliamentarians from the European Parliament or with people from the Commission. And here we are again, you know, sort of five, six years later, and efficiency has improved somewhat, but you know, why are we not seeing a massive leap towards more efficiency? Why are we still having to make the same case, which is now even stronger because energy prices have gone up by so much? Why are we not going faster? What's stopping us? Well, so let me say, first of all, you, you do such a good job, Jan, particularly I follow you on Twitter and you, you talk, you talk from a personal perspective about your own, your own experiences with the heat pumps and insulating your home. And I, I really admire uh, that approach because sometimes when we talk about the need for policies, we haven't tried them. And of course, you know, um, I like you um, and like others sort of, we, we have to practice what we preach. Um, so in answer to your question, um, Yes, I'm afraid it is true. We have been saying very similar things for rather a long time. Um, I certainly have been doing so for over a decade. Um, but um, I think on the positive side, uh, we have two key directives, as you know, being recast. Um, and it's mainly because um, we need to deliver a net zero economy, a net zero emissions economy. Um, and most of the energy efficiency sort of heavy lifting needs to be done in the next decade. So the energy efficiency directive that sets overall targets and the energy performance of buildings directive, which deals specifically with the 40% of Europe's energy, which buildings use and that emit over a third of our greenhouse gases. So just on those two, um, I was really happy to see the EU Parliament uh, committee proposed new 2030 energy efficiency targets of 43% final energy consumption target versus a, a 2007 reference scenario, of course, um, and that the rapporteurs had increased that over 10% from the original 32.5% reduction that was in the old directive. And the commissions, in my opinion, rather weakly proposed 36% that was from July of last year. 
Of course, all the technical work was supported there by the Fraunhofer Institute. And uh, I, I actually think that, you know, it's fantastic that Parliament is really looking to scale up overall ambition. I, of course, also think that that ambition needs to not just be at the European level. It needs to be binding on member states, which is a key distinction. Again, it sounds like a small thing, but I think actually we know that how important the role of national governments here is. And um, I, I, you know, I'm happy to see energy savings obligations on energy suppliers, which have been one of the, you know, most successful um, uh uh, instruments out of the energy efficiency directive to increase to two for a two percent annual saving on their for their clients and an extended scope of the mandatory three percent renovation rate on all public buildings and those are owned occupied and those providing a public service so those are like schools hospitals and so forth of course um the energy performance of buildings directive is you know has a, a policy cycle that's somewhat delayed um it was uh, recast by the Commission in December compared to July, and I think the couple of things that are in there, which I which I'm looking specifically at, is minimum energy performance standards. So those need to trigger a deep renovation. So in essence, for listeners, that just means that the Commission's proposing that for residential buildings, for example, from 2020. Sorry, 2030, um, there'll be a deadline by which if you have a low performing building in a class G or class F, um, that'll have to be uh, renovated to, to, be, to get out of that class. That will cover around 15% of buildings by 2029. Now, I actually think, again, without getting too technical, um, we need to um, improve that because I worry that leaving things to 2030 is a lot too late and we actually need to find ways to trigger deep renovations much more much sooner than that and that's why i've been working on something called a mortgage portfolio standard so for me the 6000 eu banks who have over 150000 branches who deal with 7 trillion euros worth of mortgage debt today should be more engaged with the provision of renovation loans. And I think they can do that through a mortgage portfolio standard, which is very simply the application of vehicle emission standards or renewable portfolio standards, which have been two wonderful policies that have worked in other sectors, to the building sector. So for all banks that have lent against existing buildings, many of them, of course, being those low-performing buildings, they need to identify them. And they need to provide the upgrade capital in a in a fully financed package, which provides an optimal deep renovation to all of those clients to reduce the bank's energy transition risks and to green their mortgage portfolios at the same time. There's around 50 million owner-occupied and mortgaged homes in Europe, which um, by 2030, the EU, EU renovation wave only targets 35 million in total. So I think those are the kinds of numbers and the kinds of parties we need to have to have coming to the table. May I come in here? Because there will soon be 50 million and one home-owned buildings. And I just bought one. And um, to my surprise, right. the Green Bank already offers differentiated rates according to your EPC standard, so which means this EPC standard has to be rigid and solid enough if that is the basis for the conditions under which you get the loan. And indeed, they offer also an add-on if, you know, tick a few boxes on green uh, and inside 
renovations. So one bank that was doing it already. Um, I wonder, however, because from what I've seen with your portfolio idea and the discussions in the council, member states were rather skeptical and, well, they were skeptical on many things in this piece of legislation, but um, it seems that was going too far. The banks, that's a different sector. Um, do you think this will be feasible? Because, I mean, like if I look at a city like Brussels, you can hardly find the good ones. You know, basically the building stock is E to G here. Yeah. I mean, well, Michaela, well, first of all, congratulations. I'm glad. First of all, I'm glad you bought a home. <laughs> Second of all, I'm glad they offered you def- sort of lower cost financing <laughs> to be uh, to, to renovate it. So, um, so look, um, I actually think that to move 235 billion euros a year, which is the amount that the EU renovation wave says we need to fund the renovations that are appropriate. Um, and of course, that will get us quickly out of gas and will ensure up the energy security. And it's a great way to spend money because you spend it on local jobs and you spend it on um, locally produced materials on the whole. Um, uh, basically, um, we need to uh, engage organizations that have the capacity to move millions of transactions. So I guess I've come to my conclusions through a process of elimination because we've seen uh, utilities create um, energy services companies, ESCOs, that have been able to work at an industrial scale. We've seen finance really not a bottleneck for industrial energy efficiency that suffers other um, issues. And we've seen public buildings come under the the scrutiny of a specific article in the directive, which which requires them to be exemplary and to to come down. But really, the owner-occupied space, the home sector, has been a difficult one, but it's an enormous one. I mean, most people in Europe live in homes they own. So we need to give those people money to, to provide them with a better quality home, which which uses less energy because it's really unfortunate that we're locking people into what's going to be a very expensive uh, retirement when energy prices, as they have been doing recently, go up. So um, whether so, the thing about mortgage portfolio standards is it's not a new invention. It relies on existing successful policies that have revolutionized two other sectors, notably the car sector and the renewable sector in the United States. So pretty decent um, sort of uh, um, examples. But also um, it engages um, uh, organizations that are used to signing millions of transactions a, a, a week, you know, with millions of customers all across Europe. So there's no there's no part of Europe that's sort of underserved by banks um, and 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 other mortgage lenders. Um, also, uh, you know, it worries me greatly that uh, as good as some of the examples are of where local authorities have been doing this very diligently, and I can think of examples in Spain, France, Latvia, uh, you know, Czech, all across the board, Ireland, etc. Um, you know, th- they they are subscale, and the concern is I don't see them getting to scale at the speed that's necessary, and so we need to find should we say, something that's already there, already talking to millions of customers about financing things, including their buildings. And and lo and behold, 50 million conversations are ongoing as you pay a mortgage every month. 
And so I'm like, ha, 50 million, right? Let's, so that sounds like the right kind of order of magnitude. So how much do we have to pay to get into those conversations? You know, how much do banks have to earn in order to be able to help those customers effectively lead a better quality life through a, through a more energy efficient home? And that to me seems, seems to be the question. Yeah, Peter, actually, I've just um, uh, you know, extended our own mortgage to install photovoltaic because the the savings that we're getting from that um, are more than the extra cost on the mortgage. So clearly, the same is the case for many energy efficiency measures. I, I wonder, though, if let's say we solve the finance issue and people are enabled to make those investments, how quickly could we ramp up the deployment of energy efficiency in Europe? Uh, I've been talking to some people from the industry who say, we're already at full capacity with factories after COVID. You know, there's such a backlog in terms of orders. Uh, and of course, you also hear in countries, not just Germany, but all over Europe, that there's a, there's a constraint in the workforce um, of actually being able to install energy efficiency measures. So, so how, how do we tackle that? How can we really accelerate deployment by scaling up the supply chain, what, what do you think would be needed to do that if we got the finance right? I mean, that, that's a difficult bit, but let's assume we get that right. How do we get the other piece right, which is about enabling people to actually get the service they need? Yeah, it's it's the right question, Jan, of course. Um, and it's a real shame too, isn't it? Um, because when, when I started um, putting these ideas together about a decade ago, uh, we were just coming out of a financial crisis. And one of the main things in front of all the member states was how do we get people back into the, the workforce, local jobs and mm -hmm. things was what was needed. Um, you know, now I note, uh, so I've, I listened to a Canadian radio station, bizarrely, and I'm listening to ads from the local stores in, in Vancouver, just saying, don't, you know, we need, we need staff. Don't bother to come with a CV. Just show up. We'll interview you. Please, anyone come. Um, and it does sound that there is a general shortage, uh, you know, as a result of these um, sort of of the unleashing of economic growth sort of since since we were all locked down, really. So uh, but in buildings renovation, clearly there is a skills gap. Um, there is also a demand gap. So people don't want renovations enough. Um, and there is a knowledge gap. Um, which is, I think, why should you want a, re a renovation particularly? Um, finance, I think, as you've probably identified, and I think, as I think, is, mo is the one that's most easily solved. But when I say um, we need uh, finance, I'm not saying we just need sort of money fl floating around that you can just sort of pick at out of your window. We want the institutions that manage that money involved. So what I mean by that is the hundreds of thousands of bank employees need to be involved in the human, so that they need to provide the human connective tissue to the homeowners with whom they already have a relationship to bring them up the knowledge, uh, sort of so up the knowledge ramp and, and through a financing discussion and into a more comfortable and better performing home. And so for me, it's more than just the availability of money that I'm referring to when I talk about the, the engagement of mortgage lenders. It's the human capacity. And because I think that we can train uh, those organizations perhaps faster uh, in, in the delivery of these new financing products as just one of the number of products they have to be trained upon all the time. And I see the, the mortgage lenders as being a rationalizing force 
with the ability to be able to identify who's doing good work, the local um, project managers that are needed in every region. Um, after all, they're present in those regions and they are good at arranging the supply chains to, for example, um, mortgage, so sorry, um, home insurance and car insurance and car, car loan purchases. And um, so there's many other areas of our economic existence which financial institutions have rationalized for us. In fact, one of the things that I always sort of sort of think of when I'm thinking of sort of home renovations is I'm comparing it to the purchase of a car. The car is the second most important purchase that families will make. And yet how how you know where are the showrooms? Where are the sales managers? Where's the um, you know where's the the beautiful you know TV ads that show the excitement of a of a new home re renovation? I mean, this they're not there, are they? And and uh, it seems bizarre to me that when we're looking at a potential market the size of two trillion euros across Europe in the next decade, we don't have uh, organisations rushing to make this space easier for people. Yeah, what's the payback period? for um, a really expensive sports car. Nobody ever seems to be asking that question. But whenever I mention anything on remotely having yeah. to do with energy efficiency, that's always the first question. What's the payback? Uh, and I really think you're right, Peter. Yeah, we need to be much more clear about the benefits. Yeah, actually, more energy efficient homes tend to be more comfortable. You know, They're more modern, they're nicer to live in. Um, and, and it's not really just about the financial savings that you're making. They're, they're, they're part of the benefits, but there's so many others as well. I wonder, we already said, and I, I noticed I start to become here a little bit the non-optimistic voice in this show. But so on energy efficiency, we keep on saying the same things and somehow nothing has changed. Um Now, with the new situation after Ukraine, uh, is it maybe also time for a new language around this? Maybe just energy efficiency first, obviously, I'm sorry to say, but did not deliver anything. I want to go as far as to say wherever I read energy efficiency first in a document, for me, that alarm bells go off because it usually means it hasn't been applied. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to talk about it case in point, recent strategy from the commission, uh, which then goes on to boost hydrogen without, you know, saying where it should go, which is not energy efficient. It's not an efficient use of your scarce resource. Should we talk about getting rid of the energy waste in the system or somehow come with a new language and come with uh, to to, uh, to make this more popular? I just think maybe it doesn't sell yet. Yeah, I've so I've been listening, Michaela, to uh, sort of these arguments about we got to make energy efficiency more sort of sexy and exciting. Um, I yeah. I sort of really I, I I I sort of challenge you to find me using those terms. I always think it's going to be it's. I mean. <sighs> It doesn't have to sell itself through social media. It's not going to be sexy and exciting. It's just going to be done. Um, and why is it going to be done? For what um, yeah, uh, Jan said, which is because actually you want to live in an energy efficient home. And so much testimony. The bizarre thing is the people who've had renovations somehow or other aren't well talking to the people who haven't. Because every time I've spoken to somebody who has, they're absolutely delighted, but not necessarily because their bills have gone down. Often they can't even remember, but it's because they're using their homes in a different way. It's like that cold, mm -hmm. damp room we never went into and the kids didn't enjoy, we now use and it's, the, it's become the center of our house. It's almost as if houses reorientate themselves and the living space reorientates itself around efficiency. So we need 
we do need to find a better way of describing it. But um, at the at the same time, um, you know, I think it will it will only do what's written on the tin. And what we keep saying is what's what's you know available, what can be done, um, is transformational. Um, so, uh, you know, what um, I, I guess for me. The story I was thinking, the story of so homeowners and small businesses often just don't see energy efficiency as a top priority. And the way they express that in surveys is they say, we haven't got the money to renovate. So it's kind of a, it's a mm. weird dichotomy. I think people say they haven't got the money when they don't really want to do something. And so it's not as if they couldn't get the money, but it's just they don't, mm. they're not motivated to get the money. So again, just without sort of, sort of, sort of repeating the same thing, I think that, um, None of us well understand sort of like save savings and investments and, and and pension funds and things like that. We we rely on financial projections and and trustworthy organizations and people who sort of sell us you know uh, these types of financial products. And in a way, um, the uh, relate the sort of trusted relationships um, can uh, deliver a, a, what I think should be a compelling financial investment. So if you are, if you provided your offered and and this sort of talks to a pro- something I'm trying to develop, which is the EU backed renovation loan, but provided you're offered attractive, very low cost money, very sort of uh, long term, which matches the assets, because what you're trying to build is, a, is something that doesn't pay back quickly, it pays back over the very long term. We know that green properties are worth more, have better market access than uh, sort of inefficient properties. We know because uh, one of the working groups that I lead for the Energy Efficiency Financial Institutions Group studied 800,000 mortgages across five countries, and it showed that energy efficient properties produce less defaults and arrears from their owners because clearly their owners have more cash because they're not paying it all on energy. They're also worth between 3 and 8% more, the highest energy performing versus the lowest. So, you know, uh, we haven't discussed it yet, but, you know, the, the EU taxonomy is going to help us um, here because it's a labeling system that can help us differentiate green homes from non-green homes. Um, and that'll help financial institutions basically run through their portfolios the way I suggested earlier and identify the ones that they can convert from, should we say, you know, brown into green and then provide the funds to do that. And then, of course, the funded properties will deliver the energy savings and comfort uh, sort of and quality that we're, we're all keen that they do. What does the taxonomy say? How does it define a green home? I don't remember. Uh, it looks at the energy use only, not at the products used, well, I dep- guess. Well, it depends. So uh, the taxonomy, uh, sort of a building per se, needs to comply with um, the, the rules in place, which uh, today, if you wish to build a new home, it needs to be net zero. So st- sorry, net, sorry, um, nearly, nearly zero energy, nearly. nearly zero energy sort of at birth. <laughs> At birth. So without going down that rabbit hole, let's just park that exactly. and uh, assume that those buildings are being built to standard. And, uh, and, and then it says, if you're going to do a renovation, you need to deliver at least a, a net 30% energy saving to the homeowner to qualify, to make that renovation qualify as green. Now, I, I of course, think that we can do considerably better than that. And that's, that's a very low enough. bar. Nevertheless, yeah. um, you know, I think with a mortgage portfolio standards, the lenders will be um, will be proactively uh, looking to take the lowest of their portfolios to bring them to the highest. Because it, on a portfolio basis, you need to move G's to A's 
you know, yeah. I mean, you can do less transactions moving G's to A's with a lot with a lot of money to a small group of clients than you can. You have to move the entire portfolio one notch, you know, from say D to or D to C uh, to achieve the same portfolio effect. So it just wouldn't. And then would those all save the thirty percent net energy savings? Probably not. So I I think that mm-hmm. while taxonomy maybe isn't the sort of ultimate sort of uh, sort of like standard f- against which every home renovation should be measured for the financial purpose, which for which it was designed, it probably is probably okay for now. It, I mean, it should also be ratcheted up in, in the next five years, which is the cycle through which those those uh, limits will be uh, reviewed. <laughs> if they ever want to go through this exercise again, that is not <laughs> to redo the same exercise in five years, but okay. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Peter, I just wondered if you could um, maybe define what you mean by a deep renovation uh, and whether perhaps that's putting some people off. And, you know, I'm looking, I'm sitting in my house. I've owned my house for a couple of years or say I owned it, I pay the mortgage on it. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to spend a lot of money making it hugely energy efficient because I'm not planning on being here more than a couple of years. Um, and it's a long, you know, it is a big investment with a long-term uh, payback. Is there something smaller that people could do um, and to make some more efficiency measures uh, in in their in their housing or in their flats or in their if for low co- low income households that perhaps can't afford a deep renovation, um, is this is is that a way of around it of, of just trying to get the first few bits underway, the little bits, the triple glazing or the wall insulation or something much easier that can help start the ball rolling? And yeah, what is a deep renovation and is it worthwhile? Right. Okay. All. Excellent questions. Um, so, you know, formally, uh, deep renovation, I think, needs to be better defined in the in the recast energy performance of buildings directive. Um, but nevertheless, I think the um, the the tone of it, and you know, stakeholders have, have discussed, you know, is that a seventy percent energy saving, an eighty percent energy saving, a cost optimal energy saving? These technical words sort of uh, are there, but most of the so going back to work that technical work that I sort of poured over for years, we looked at all classes of Spanish homes. And Spain is a climate unlike the north of Europe, where you also have homes that don't need to be heated in the Canary Islands, you know, or maybe for one month a year. So, Mm -hmm. you know, technically, can you reduce the footprint? So in in Spain, again, rough numbers, sort of 19 million uh, uh, residential uh, buildings, about 10 million of them, uh, we felt you could reduce 80% of their energy footprint cost effectively. When I say cost effectively, what I mean is assuming a very low interest rate over the the, the life of the asset. So for insulation, that's 30 to 50 years. For a boiler, that's 10 to 15 years, hopefully. For a lighting system, depends. But with LEDs, that can be for a long period of time and so on. Um, the, so there's, there's many reasons why a deep... So where you're going is you're saying, can we do deep renovations bit by bit, staged? That's the kind of the te- the, the term that people use in Brussels, a staged renovation. Um, and like everything in the building sector, 
you know, the answer is it kind of depends because it kind of depends, you know, are you in a shared building, for example, you know, and if you're in a shared building, you have, so I, I live in a flat in a shared building in Madrid. So I have to convince all of my neighbors at the same yeah. time to be able to do a renovation of the shared parts in order for me to access insulation to the external walls, insulation to the attic and other things like that. So, um, the actual so so I assume from the question, David, you live in a single family house and therefore you have full control of all the levers, in which case, um, you know, short term in the UK, of course, um, there was a, a rush to fill the cavity walls. Cavity walls are these really terribly inefficient ways of insulating a, a home, which, um, if done well, can save a decent amounts of, 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 of energy. Then um, I think people so. Uh, classic double glazing salesmen have done an amazing job of convincing everybody you need the new windows i don't know that the windows actually pay back at all um they're they're a sort of mm -hmm. they're more of a vanity sort of measure i mean of course they're a part of a renovation but ironically this illustrates to me what you can do with the proper sales force it's because windows have a proper sales force that actually sell them mm -hmm. right deep renovations clearly don't um and you know so so uh of the other thing, of course, which is critical, is the actual heating system, boiler or the HVAC or the you know, heating cooling system, depending on where you are. That piece of equipment is the is one of the main sources of emissions, particularly if it's a if it's a gas or a fuel uh, boiler boiler, and um, will be oversized if you just swap it out and you don't do anything on the demand side. So if you just swap it out, you'll actually have to have a boiler which is over capacity for your own needs. Now, of course, um, in some sort of, you know, in some houses, in some situations, um, you're going to need high temperature sort of radiators to be able to get the heat out. In other opportunities, if you're doing a renovation, you can under, you can install underfloor heating, um, which, which are sort of, you know, producing a, a much sort of more even uh, temperature experience together with levels of in insulation can create a really nice um, ex sort of home experience. But of course, those things, you know, um, are sort of deeper, let's say. But back to your original question, um, I think what's what we can't avoid is the realization that everyone's home will, well, not everyone, 75%, uh, three quarters of people's homes will be renovated between now and 2050. And that's just a fact, deeply renovated. So if we if we just start to mentally assume that, I think the other part of that coin is it's probably going to cost you ten percent of your home value, give or take. So if you if you live in the average British yeah. home, let's say of two hundred and fifty thousand of value, that's twenty five thousand pounds. You know, if you average continental yeah. European home, maybe it's twenty thousand euros. Um, but that's order of magnitude. So think so then sort of like use that lens to shine upon your question, which is what can I do for just a grand, right? So it's like, okay, well, you want to spend today, 10, uh, sorry, five to 10% of your renovation budget. Okay, fine. So you're leaving 95%, 90 to 95% of your renovation budget, which you're going to have to spend in the next, in the next 30 years aside. Okay, no problem. For when? You know, for, for when you go on holiday or for when you sort of, uh, you know, sort of give that period of time where you're, but let's, you know, and you said, I'm only going to be in my home for two years. Um, well, I would argue perhaps you should look at the value increase that you might garner through doing the right things. Because as people become aware that there is a 10% liability attached to homes that have not been renovated and that the worst performing homes will become 
unable to be rented will become kind of you know stranded assets almost in the future then you then the market will quickly sort of respect to renovation so you may find yourself saying well you know what actually maybe it works that we take a slightly longer holiday or something like that and i get that deep renovation in so that our home's worth more when we want to come to sell it that's a really good point peter and uh, i looked at actually at the uk uh, just last week how much money is being spent on home renovation more generally and the, the figure is absolutely staggering. It was £40 billion last year spent on home improvements, which are mainly, I assume, for new kitchens, new bathrooms, extensions, loft conversions, things like that. But if you could just get a slice of that and use it for energy efficiency improvements, uh, just in the same way, helping upgrading the value as all the other measures, that already will get us quite a, quite a long way. It's it's ironic, isn't it? Because I think uh, I, I read also that the the amount of uh, additional costs that the UK uh, energy customer would have to bear as a result of the recent energy price increases and gas price increases was thirty eight billion pounds. So what you're saying is it's a year's worth of renovation, which is the thing that is you know which which is the is the size of the crisis that we are facing. Um. We've heard now, also, so that uh, so the commission basically they announced uh, that they come out with a, a new communication, a strategy, repower you in two months, and they have started talking to all the member states again to see what can we do to make things better, including also with the money we have earmarked in the recovery plan. So they revisit this and. Peter uh, and uh, we had a look at all those plans also. So, and, and, you know, renovation featured prominently in all of them. What, what would you now recommend to the member states to get better, you know, to, to scale up the ambition, to get more value for money? What, what, what would be your recommendation for this upgrade of the plans to also upgrade the renovation? So uh, thanks, Michaela. I mean, it's, it's, so member states have obviously um, put a lot of time and effort into the thinking around a buildings renovation since they were asked to provide long-term buildings renovation strategies in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking, just to, just as we came on on today, I was looking to see which one's doing the best. And I, probably, I think it's Ireland. So Ireland leads the Odyssey Muir Country Scoreboard, and that combines energy efficiency level progress and policies. Um, I was impressed by the fact that their Sustainable Energy um, Authority mm -hmm. um, has a public sector program to renovate to EPC level B, 12 million square meters in 6,600 buildings, um, all in a public register. And that is owned by, again, when we say public sector, we don't realize how complex that is, 352 public bodies. Um, this plan was funded by DG Reform, that has an enormous budget that's able to support member states if they ask for it in, in such preparation of plans um, and, of course, fund it. So in addition to this, Ireland also pays half all deep home renovations to EPB level B. So this is, again, an, an example of how a, an, uh, a member state is putting, in this case, 8 billion euros from its treasury until 2030 to just just sort of like 50-50 it with the with the homeowner. Um, they have 
great um, examples of energy agencies like one in Tipperary that's a social enterprise, 17 people for 20 years have been promoting local renovations and dealing with the skills gaps and all of the education and what have you. So again, when I gave you my bank example earlier, I didn't mean to say that we 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 don't have most excellent public services providing the information necessary. I just felt the banks could organize the actual sort of delivery and the financing mechanism as a sort of quality check. And of course, we've got MEPs from Ireland like Kieran Cuffer and Sean Kelly, who've been doing a great job of raising energy efficiency in the EU Parliament. So there are countries which I think have been well prepared now and are moving from sort of preparation into action. Um, and I think what I what I certainly would recommend is we live through the experience of the uh, one-stop shops and the organizations that are doing a good job on the ground and very quickly replicate, replicate them. So Germany has uh, 11,000 uh, energy advisors that work together in conjunction with the KFW working through banks. That's always been a model I've liked. Um, Czech uh, has a, a, a public renovation fund that's got a website which shows all the projects that they have been involved in, which is good. Latvia and uh, and uh, Estonia have been extremely um, uh, extremely good at renovating the sort of Soviet era uh, multifamily dwellings and have got mech have got models that work there. Um, we've we've had in Spain um, uh, in the Basque region and Seville, we've had uh, great sort of like local uh, uh, organizations that have been able to promote over years the sort of uh, the social understanding that's necessary here. But Notwithstanding all of that, Michaela, what we don't have um, is a Ministry for Buildings Renovation. And I'm sorry to kind of call it out just for the way it is, but um, I don't think um, governments care enough about buildings renovation. We've It falls between stools. It falls between stools in the Commission. It falls between stools at national government. We don't have joined up thinking. We don't have cross-ministerial task force that are genuinely budgeted up and working. I mean, I, I, took, one exa I took one example, which is sort of completely different, but I think in, in Spain, because it's here on my back door, kind of illustrates the point. Uh, and that is, you know, in, in Spain, we take very seriously uh, the matter of um, uh, gender balance and, and equality. And so much so that there was a new ministry that was created to, to, to think about that in 2008. And today, that ministry employs 190 people and has a budget of over 500 million euros. So that is what a government does when it takes a matter very seriously. So I, I just wish that we had the level of seriousness on buildings renovation that I think it deserves and that we and that would deliver, you know, the true changes that uh, I think all of us here have been working towards. Peter, I'm just going to play devil's advocate uh, with you there. In the fact that there's no cross ministry or um, task force or, or energy efficiency departments in governments, is that because politicians realize it's not a vote winner um, and it's not actually going to make much difference? Or is it because they simply don't understand the impact it can be? Hmm. I mean, that's, again, that's, that sort of goes back a little bit to this kind of, are we are we ruled by social media? So I, I don't know the answer to that question precisely, but um, it is true that home renovation doesn't play too well to the gallery in terms of um, it's, I, it, I've never seen a politician see it as being sort of a vote, a direct vote winner. And nevertheless, it's contrary is a, is a vote loser, isn't it? So inefficient homes that have high skyrocketing energy bills 
just causes governments, you know, can cause governments to be overturned. So, ha, huh, that's interesting, isn't it? So it's like we, things that things that tend to be government killers include energy price shocks, inflation, you know, things that leave your population unprotected. Whereas the solution to that. In Germany, only gasoline prices will do that, unfortunately. Not yet living. So the, but, but we can, but the, it's almost as though we're talking about an insurance policy against the kinds of things mm. that, that cause civil unrest. Yeah. And I think that we need, you know, we, we need people who, who are able to afford and live in comfortable homes that have mobility systems that serve their needs and that deliver them the opportunities that they need to work and to feel as valued members of our community. You know, I and others have felt that the uh, EU's Green Deal is a part of that commitment. So, I, you know, the future of the energy mm -hmm. system, I think, helps resolve those issues. It doesn't solve them all perfectly, but it certainly provides the platform for people to be able to develop their lives in the way in which I think most Europeans want to. So basically, the governments have to start treating buildings as part of our energy infrastructure. Yeah, they're huge assets. I mean, we half of our wealth is in buildings. Yeah. It just blows my mind. We have... 20 trillion euros worth of buildings. It's the most it's the most valuable asset we have across Europe. And guess what? You know, are we investing in them? Apparently, apparently we've got many, many other better priorities. That's surprising to me. Although, although not, because then Jan said 40 billion a year goes into buildings in the UK. So, but how we how are we not connecting those dots? Absolutely. Uh, Peter, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the Energy Efficiency Financial Institutions Group. Uh, that you uh, are a part of. Can you tell us a little bit about the work it's doing in financing the energy efficiency? Yeah, sure. I would, it doesn't I'd be delighted finance. to. I mean, well, yeah, that good point, Michaela. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so the Energy Efficiency Financial Institutions Group. It's it was set up by the European Commission and the United Nations Environment Programme in 2013. Um, I've been since then its rapporteur. We answered these questions in, a, in this long sort of written form um, in a report that Mara Shevkovic, who at the time was launching Energy Union on the same day, February of 2015, launched alongside that. And its goals or the goals of the group was to work with financial institutions to help the commission deliver energy security and efficiency and to make sure that the investment uh, sort of needs for that market were met. Today, uh, EFIX got over 500 members. Um, we, I think, are on activity number 17. Um, we've got working groups that, that have 30 to 40 active participants from financial institutions and expert stakeholders. We are providing uh, the commission and, and those that wish to read them uh, insights into data, operationalizing energy efficiency first principle, Europe's largest project database with 23,000 industrial and buildings energy efficiency projects, multiple benefits, industrial energy efficiency, stimulating consumer demand, and some best practices with, you know, which catalog all of the financial instruments that have worked. So uh, it's really, you, most people listening may not have heard of, heard of it because it's a mid-level group. We actually launched it at the time as a mid-level group. So you always hear of high-level groups, high-level working groups have got flamboyant <laughs> experts that everybody knows their names, and they come together for a year, and then they seem to dis dissipate. Whereas a mid-level group can actually keep kicking out great, uh, sort of really necessary, uh, technically uh, well-informed pieces of work in conjunction with 
real financial institutions and real and real sort of practitioners over many many years, which is what we do, and I'm proud to say we keep doing. So, but basically, as if I understand it correctly, it's like you bring together the the ones with the money with the ones that understand the technology, right? That's how I understood yeah, and, it. Well, and that's the, how someone described yeah, it. Yeah, and the practitioners and the yeah. and the purposes to write down all of our experiences and then have the commission make better policies as a result. So we we really so the commission asks us questions, difficult questions. We write it all down. So the classic example would be right now. The commission asked us how should we operationalize the energy efficiency first principle inside financial institutions. So at uh, the beginning of this year, I and and 30 to 40 others got got together and we're working on that. Now, how are we working on that? We're asking financial institutions today like for example the EBRD who have been a leader sort of why are you a leader what do you do about energy efficiency and how do you quote unquote put put it first i mean the story of of ebrd is amazing they literally went through their entire back catalog of 5000 loans to see who they were lending to they went and talked to them all about energy efficiency they whittled down the the, the sort of the list into those that could take very attract financially attractive new money in order to be, do energy savings projects inside their industrial sites and inside their inside their buildings and and then that that sort of process which they then had to set up internal team of engineers to be able to make sure they're doing the right thing they formed the whole ecosystem of consultants in the regions you know it's really brilliant and that process led to billions of euros worth of new lending and in fact almost revolutionized the way they thought about how they lend to industry and and i think it's that experience which is now you know over a decade old that that is being replicated by ebrd uh, sorry by the eib by the the world bank and the ifc to some degree in their lending programs and of course in private sector financial institutions we there are a number of specialist uh, energy efficiency organizations uh, that we have as members who raise money today just to put it into energy savings effectively and we ask them what what are you doing differently why do we need separate organizations what can you tell the regular sort of like lenders and 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 uh, money managers how can they you know use your experience to basically spot energy efficiency projects that they have and so on and so forth the whole thing about energy efficiencies i think about not necessarily creating something new but it's just doing everything that you do just so much better but still every country and every house and every uh, climate condition is different that is still there's a lot to to learn from each other but i also earlier when we talked at some point you, you said it depends on the country some have more cool you see what i mean yeah it's different but not it's it's, it's okay. yeah it's different but it's not that different so I this just this week I had an absolutely remarkable sort of um, uh, presentation from a German group of people, ex-insurance industry, who had put together a model that had used AI and the data sources that are available to create a three-dimensional map of of all of the 19 million buildings in Germany, and they decided to do it in Austria, and they managed to do Austria in nine months, and now they're going to do the whole of Europe. So I actually think this is using satellite data, Google Maps, um, you know catastral data and what have you i actually think that this so-called difference of building to building is going to be very quickly a thing of the past because we none of us here myself included are up to speed with the way in which technology is advancing in these matters and i think what is an un, what is an unknown 
to us today is very much a known unknown for us in in a few years time and i think uh, with those for example you know sort of structural maps of what exists we will then very quickly move to a point where almost automatically we know how much or what type of renovation is required for every single building specifically um, and how much that's going to cost. And, th and then financial institutions will be better armed to figure out who to lend to and what they need to, what needs to get done. I mean, most of the stuff, I mean, so transparency can really deliver, I think, um, you know, huge, huge changes of gear in this market. Hmm. Uh Peter, just uh, before we wrap up, a um, little bit interested about your backstory. You know, um, before you worked in energy efficiency and climate policy, uh, you were a banker. As I mentioned, you were at JP Morgan. How did you end up working in energy efficiency and and the finance side of things in that sector? So you're right. I, I worked for in JP Morgan um, f uh, in London and New York from '92 to 2000, mainly in debt capital markets, and and I guess to some degree all that work with finance, finance ministers and treasurers enabled me to understand the way they think. But um, really, it was because at the turn of the century, I became a social entrepreneur. I, I just couldn't see myself sort of, you know, dying of a heart attack as a banker sort of early on. So uh, I, uh, I, I decided I wanted to try and turn my life to something um, which would make a, a huge difference. And I think I've I've done that, but again, listeners, please, you be the judge. Um, I launched something called Charity Digital, which is a UK social enterprise that has provided over a quarter of a billion pounds worth of tech and support and uh, education to 36,000 UK charities uh, to date since it, since I formed it. Um, I was a founder of and on the board of something called Think NPC, that's a philanthropic consultancy known for its work in helping not-for-profits set their own strategies and develop their impact measures uh, in the UK. Again, 20 years old, uh, sort of this month. Um, and, and it was really during that time in 2004, when I was working with WWF and the UK's Woodland Trust, I first really as it were, discovered climate change. Uh, and I sort of, in that sort of Damascan moment that I decided I needed to really focus on that. And so having found very capable individuals to replace me in those NGOs that I'd launched, I joined Climate Change Capital, which was, you know, in their own words, the first international investment bank for climate change. I moved to Madrid because I just recently got married and that's where my wife wanted to live. Um, and we, we, I started funding sort of, you know, renewables and emissions reductions uh, at that time. We tried to raise a green infrastructure fund in 2007 that would have been the first at CCC, and that was right before the financial crisis. And within that, there was a $100 million side pocket for energy efficiency, which I was fascinated by. So really, in 2007, I started thinking, how many people would you need? What transactions would you need to be doing um, in order to fill up $100 million worth of a green infrastructure fund through just energy efficiency? When uh, the financial crisis made that fund unraisable, I launched Climate Strategy, that's the company I now uh, run, and that became really our fo focus, which was, you know, how can we turn the lessons of funding for energy efficiency into strategies for governments, banks, and companies? And I, I don't know, take a look at our we website, you know, sort of G20, Mexico, France, Spain, sort of a, a, a bunch of clients later. I'm proud to say that I think we kind of did. Um, but unfortunately, Jan and Michaela, there's still too much to do. Well, we're happy you had such an early midlife crisis because it seems you had saved <laughs> an awful lot after that. Um, I wonder, because I imagine investment banker, you know, things happen quickly, no bullshit action. And then you come into this energy efficiency where things take time. So 
you must have morphed also into a new personality, I guess. No, it's a different way of, 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 of doing things and that it's a different environment, right? Well, uh, you'd have to talk to the people sort of in my office to see whether or not they agreed with you. I, I'm not. I uh, I I must say I I can't shake some of the uh, sort of the practices that were sort of honed into me of discipline and hard work and all that good <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I think that um, whilst it's true, the policy sort of environment moves quite slowly. One of the reasons why. I hope I continue to be of use to policymakers is because we don't just do policy. Um, we So uh, I set up um, five years ago a, a subsidiary called Energy Efficiency Capital Advisors. Um, we uh, actually helped um, structure and refinance 60 million euros worth of um, energy uh, savings contracts for Spanish cities. So, uh, you know, we... So we... Uh, I. You just see me, I think, Michaela, really in the in the sort of policy part of our work. But we also uh, work with sort of companies implementing emission, real emissions reduction strategies. We have a, the enormous honor of having been um, a part of the team that helped uh, Ferrovial, which is the largest uh, uh, listed infrastructure group in the world, uh, set a 2020 target to reduce its footprint emissions, um, which it delivered in 2019. So I worked for about a decade with them on that. And then we set their science-based 2030 targets. So it's real stuff. I mean, you know, we, we have a portfolio of activities. We don't just do policy work. But the value that I hope to continue to bring is, is really sort of being a little bit where the rubber hits the road in terms of finance still, uh, and then being able to reflect that back in better better policies that really work. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Peter. That was really interesting. Uh, one thing we ask all of our guests is if, if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the uh, energy market look like in 10 or 20 years' time? So uh, what does your crystal ball look like? So I think no gas for baseload power. Uh, that would be one. Um, high volatility in energy prices, but that that is massively ma sort of well-managed by increased demand-side measures, both uh, sort of including smart homes, uh, all kinds of storage solutions, local generation, mm -hmm. backup, smart decentralized grid supported by, by AI. And the way I intend to observe that happen in this crystal ball is I'm watching the island of Menorca, which has been served until now with an antique, expensive, inefficient oil-fired power station that occupies valuable real estate right in the middle of the Mediterranean's largest natural yeah. harbor. So the whole island is a UNESCO heritage site and can become, in my opinion, 100% emissions free in 20 years. My colleagues and I on, on, the, on the board of the Menorca Preservation Fund um, just supported the island's and indeed Spain's first energy community um, in, the industrial in the industrial estate of San Luis, where local businesses are coming together to basically co-invest in um, solar energy that's going to provide to their needs. It's just a start, but I think having overcome all the barriers and the administrative issues and what have you, the growth can really be exponential. And of course, that island's also perfect for EVs because it only takes you an hour to drive from one end to the other so uh i i really you know i think the crystal ball will see me uh increasingly helping menorca become self-sufficient and at the same time use that as an example that we can then wield in brussels absolutely fascinating yeah that sounds uh, uh really interesting finally then before we go today uh quickly go around the table and see what caught our eye this week uh jan what caught your eye this week 
Well, it, I must say it's been the Commission's uh, energy strategy in response uh, to the war in Ukraine. Uh, I, I've been through that in quite some detail. I'm still trying to understand actually what exactly it is it, that, that it says, and you know, because there's some confusion about some of the things that are in there. But um, no, that, that's been the main document that um, caught my eye. And um, if you haven't seen it yet, um, there, there is uh, lots of material on the Commission's website um, that we will share um, as part of the posting of this podcast. Absolutely, yes. You'll find any links to that in the in the show notes. Uh, Michaela, what caught your eye? A cartoon, um, a cartoon with an elephant. So obviously a pink elephant, but it wasn't pink because the cartoon was black and white. The elephant was called heating, and it squashed two people underneath that were called climate change and energy security. And around this was a party happening with people talking like. You know, I I own an electric vehicle. I have a startup on direct air capture, and then basically the 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 cartoon said, "Do you see it too?" <laughs> Very good. Very clever, uh, Peter. What caught your eye this week? Well, I certainly encourage all listeners to look at the World Economic Forum videos on LinkedIn. They constantly catch my eye. They are absolutely brilliant, forward-looking sort of projections of sustainable ideas. So their latest um, is on how Geneva and Toronto use lake water to heat and cool their buildings and how that will deliver an 80% reduction in Geneva's electricity footprint over time. Um, also, WEF has done methane, flying cars, Nigerian recycling, octopuses, regreening the Sahel, lab food, drone fireworks. I mean, the list goes on. But <laughs> I, every time I'm depressed, go to the WEF uh, LinkedIn and just check what their ship, you know, yeah. the future the world, world economic forum because it's great. treats your depression. That's quite a statement. <laughs> <laughs> they do have some they do really have some really uh, just look at it there. Uh, for me uh, just quickly uh, what caught my eye was um henrik steesdal uh you know the godfather of the modern wind industry um but his new outfit have uh, launched a two megawatt facility uh, in denmark that produces uh, uh, e-fuel um and turns agricultural waste into a, a green gas and a biochar um and is actually carbon negative uh, and it's hoped that this fuel can help power uh, air aviation and i actually i spoke to henrik stuzdal about it in um copenhagen in november at the uh, wind europe event there uh, and it sounds like a really fascinating um technology that he's working on and they're working on a 20 megawatt plant uh, that'll hopefully be uh, launched next year so just something really exciting in the aviation industry something that isn't often talked about but that can actually um help reduce the emissions in in there um so yeah really interesting but uh if find links to all of these uh, topics uh, in the show notes. But sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Peter, Jan, and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast or ideas for future episodes, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Peter? I'm at at Climate ST, Climate Strategy, but without the ratagy. Michaela? At Citizen Sane One. And Jan? At Jan Rosenau. Uh, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all again very soon.